welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is May 22nd, 2015, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Internal or External Shoulder Immobilization. It don't matter to me. And our guest skeptic is Dagny Kane Haas. Dagny is a physiotherapist who just completed her master's degree in clinical science and manipulative therapy. Welcome back to the SGEM, Dagny. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me again. So, you are now a master of manipulation, are you? Or should I say, a master's degree in clinical science and manipulative therapy? Well, the second part sounds much better than the first part, Ken, but I would probably say that my kids have always called me a master manipulator. <laughs> well, you are a mom after all. <laughs> now, last time you were on the SGEM, we talked about uh, rotator cuff injuries. That's correct. We covered one of the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam series called Does This Patient with Shoulder Pain Have Rotator Cuff Disease? Yeah, and it was a case of a 54-year-old man with non-traumatic shoulder pain, and we suggested getting an x-ray if you're concerned about a bony injury or involvement. Yes, and then an examination that the doctor is confident in performing would be completed, and then we described the positive and negative likelihood ratios of a few different examination techniques. Now, as the physician, I would provide an appropriate pain relief like oral analgesias or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And don't forget to refer these types of patients to your friendly neighborhood physiotherapist. And remember, please, that it takes at least three months to treat rotator cuff pathology. Well, I don't know about this friendly stuff because I remember no pain, no gain coming from you, Dagny. <laughs> but let's do another shoulder case. But this time, let's talk about dislocations. Can you give us a case scenario? Certainly. Let's see. It is Memorial Day long weekend after all. So let's say we have a 24-year-old man who's goofing around at the beach. So this 24-year-old male falls and dislocates his shoulder for the very first time. An examination shows it is an isolated injury and x-rays demonstrate an anterior dislocation of his shoulder without any fracture. Procedural sedation is performed with no complications. Post-procedure image shows a reduced shoulder joint. You are now getting ready to immobilize him and wonder, hmm, what would be best, internal or external rotation? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. But before we answer that question, how about a little background information about that shoulder joint? Because it's pretty amazing. I mean, it has the widest range of motion of any joint in the human body. Yes. And because of this, it makes it very useful but it's also very susceptible to injuries. And these injuries could include dislocation, which is what we're talking about today, fractures, rotator cuff tears, like we talked about last time you invited me on the podcast, and of course, neurological injuries. Yeah, and if we're talking dislocations, the vast majority of these dislocations are in the anterior position. And you know what? It seems to be active young men that are at greater risk for dislocating their shoulder. Hmm, I wonder why. Ken. Not exactly sure why these young men seem to take many more risks <laughs> that result in these more traumatic injuries, but regardless, the traditional treatment for primary anterior shoulder dislocation has been to immobilize in a sling with the arm positioned in this internal adducted 
position. There is a high reoccurrence rate for instabilities, especially in the young population. Yeah, but a disagreement in the literature emerged uh, a couple of years ago when a couple of studies were published showing the benefits of external rotation versus the traditional internal rotation of mobilization as an alternative to early surgical intervention and possibly reduction in recurrent instability seen in these young patients. But then in 2011, excuse me if I say this author's name wrong, Lavage et al. found no reductions in the rate of recurrent instabilities for primary anterior shoulder dislocations. So therefore contradicting the findings of Ayatoi at L. Yeah, and their conclusion was, quote, immobilization in external rotation does not, does not reduce the rate of recurrence for patients with first-time traumatic anterior shoulder dislocations, end of quote. So now here we are in 2014. There were two studies looking at the issue of immobilization after primary shoulder dislocation, and they both came to different conclusions. So let's get to answering that clinical question. What was it again? What is the best position to immobilize someone after a primary shoulder dislocation? And what's the reference? The reference is Hadari et al. Immobilization in external rotation combined with abduction reduces the risk of reoccurrence after primary anterior shoulder dislocation in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery, 2014. And so you know how we go through the PICO. So what was the population? So this population were patients age 15 to 55 years old presenting with a primary anterior dislocation of the shoulder. And what they did was they excluded anyone who had previous shoulder problems, a surgical joint repair, multi-directional instability, the need for surgery, and associated fractures. Right. And the intervention was external rotation of 10 degrees with abduction at 15 degrees. And then they compared it to internal rotation with adduction. But what was their primary outcome? So the primary outcome they were looking at was the recurrence rate of dislocation, which was considered when the humeral head completely or partially came out of the glenoid socket and reduced spontaneously or by manual maneuver. And then for secondary outcomes, they had an anterior apprehension test, return to pre-injury sports, a non-cooperative patient, i.e. they quit the intervention or discontinuation rate, and then the Western Ontario Shoulder Instability Index, WASI. WASI. Now, WASI up with that. Tell me more about that. You just graduated (laughs) from Western, so WASI's up. Okay, here we go. WASI, which is the Western Ontario Shoulder Instability Index, is a valid, reliable, and responsive tool used to evaluate function and quality of life of patients with shoulder instabilities. So a perfect tool for this study. So zero means there's no deficits, no complaints. 2100 is the maximum score, which would be the worst score. So the author's conclusion from this paper were, quote, immobilization with the shoulder joint in abduction and external rotation is an effective method to reduce the risk of recurrence after primary anterior shoulder dislocations and should be preferred to the traditional method of immobilization in adduction and internal rotation in clinical practice. End of quote. All right, Dagny, let's go through the 11 quality checklists for randomized clinical control trials. Question number one, the study population, was it focused on those patients seen in the emergency department? 
Yes, it was. So the patients presented to a level two trauma center. All right. And question two, were they adequately randomized? Yes, they were at a one-to-one ratio. Did they conceal the randomization? Yes, they did conceal it. They were blinded. And the patients, were they analyzed in the groups which they were randomized? Yes, they were with intention to treat analysis. How about recruitment? Was it consecutive? There was no selection bias, so yes. The patients of both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes, they were, Dr. Ken. Were all participants, that means the patients, the clinicians, the outcome assessors, were they all unaware of the group allocation? Uh, No. So the patients and the clinicians were aware. Pretty hard not to be when your arm's sitting in a certain position. And we're unsure if the outcome assessors were aware or were not. It wasn't really clear within the study. Question number eight, were all groups treated equally except for the intervention? Yes, they were. And how about follow-up? Was it complete? Yes. uh, Actually, it was really complete because they didn't lose anybody. Hmm. Hmm. That that makes me a little skeptical. It should. Uh, Question 10, all patient important outcomes were considered? Yes, they were. And the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? And yes, it was. So let's go through those key results. All right, so we had 102 patients with a mean age of 36 years, and 89% were men. Younger and mostly men. What a surprise. surprise. Um, What was the primary outcome of recurrence rate by 24 months? So with the intervention group, which was the external rotation abducted group, there was a 3.9% reoccurrence rate, so quite low, versus the control group, which was the internal rotation adducted group, which had a reoccurrence rate of 33.3%. So that gives us a uh, 29.4% absolute difference or an NNT number needed to treat of three. In other words, you'd need to treat or immobilize three patients with abduction and external rotation to prevent one recurrent dislocation by 24 months. But how about the secondary outcomes, Dagny? There was less apprehension with the external group than there was with the internal group. So the external group, they only had 8% versus the internal group had 18%. But more people in the external group discontinued the treatment, 20% versus 6%. Yes, that's true. But there was an earlier return to sport for the external group at 84% versus 32% with the internal group. And the external group also had better WASI scores. They were lower, so that's better, uh, 188 versus 231. Right. But that's the results section. Let's talk a little nerdy here. Mm. This study was powered with the assumption of 30% recurrence rate for the abduction external rotation group and 60% in the adduction internal rotation group. And it's not clear why these numbers were picked to select the sample size. But interestingly, their results demonstrated a much lower rate of recurrence than anticipated with only 4% in the external rotation group and 33% in the internal rotation group. Interesting. And there were also some concerns with the blinding, Ken. While the patient and clinicians were not blinded to the intervention, It's unclear whether the outcome assessors were aware of group allocation or not. Yeah, and a lack of blinding may have impacted the primary uh, and secondary outcomes. Patients had a telephone interview 24 months later and filled out these WASI scores 33 months later. 
Right, so there could be some recall bias being introduced, and patients may have experienced a placebo effect on the subjective WASI assessment, knowing that they were in the intervention group. And the discontinuation rate, or non-cooperation, was higher in that external group, 20%, versus the 6% seen in the traditional internal rotation group. This was thought to be due to the unpleasant effect of activities of daily living with an external immobilizer of the upper limb. It made it difficult for patients to sleep, walk through doorways, and what I found really funny was not hit people in a crowd. Ooh, I'm sorry, I just hit you in the crowd. However, you would think that the increased discontinuation rate in the external rotation group would have favored the control by potentially increasing the recurrence rate for the external rotated group. But then there were no patients lost to follow-up like we mentioned in that primary outcome at 24 months. Well, this could be true. 100% follow-up rate really makes me a bit more skeptical of the data at times. Mm-hmm. Certainly seems a little unusual. However, Ken, they did have a few patients lost to follow-up at their secondary outcome follow-up WASI scores at 33 months. Okay, so Dagny, let's go through our conclusions and compare them to the author's conclusions. All right, so these results are from a single center seem to be a little too good to be true. Oh, too good to be true. Okay, well, normally at this point, we give an SGEM bottom line, a case resolution, discuss the clinical application, and tell you what we would say to patients. But as we mentioned earlier, there was another paper from 2014 on the same topic that had the opposite conclusion. That's right, and I have a surprise for the SGEM listeners. Oh, we love surprises, Ken. Well, I made some phone calls, fired off a few emails, did some texting, and boom, boom, I say. Whoa. we, We have the lead author from that next paper. Fantastic. Dr. Daniel Whalen is an orthopedic surgeon practicing at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He did his medical school out there on the rock. Yes, that's Newfoundland. Now, he did a residency in Toronto and then did, geez, I think it was like four or five fellowships. He did one in sports medicine, arthroscopy, shoulder surgery, and trauma. But if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, he went on and got a master's degree in clinical epidemiology with his primary interest being joint instability. I gotta say, Danny boy, welcome to the SGM. Thanks, Ken. Happy to be here. Now, I understand... Not only are you an orthopedic surgeon, but this this piqued my interest. You actually married an emergency physician. Yeah, yeah, bad mistake, bad mistake, but yes, I did. I understand that you currently had some foot surgery. I did, yeah, unfortunately, yep. And are you a good patient? I'm a terrible patient. Doctors make the worst patients. You know what, I can attest to that, having seen yeah. Ken a few times. Hey, hey, easy there. There's got to be some, like, doctor physio confidentiality. <laughs> nope. Now, orthopods, Danny, take a lot of abuse for being like white-collar carpenters. This stereotype is that you're all big and strong, but not too smart. Well, that's what we'd like you guys to believe, but really, you know, we, we have uh, a great job, and uh, we want you guys to continue to think that so you won't, uh, you won't try to come and all come into orthopedics. Well, you know what? <laughs> There's some actual literature on this, though. We did a podcast, SGM number six, dispelling that myth from the 2011 British Medical Journal Christmas Edition paper by Subamarian et al. And it was called Orthopedic Surgeons as Strong as an Ox and Almost Twice as Clever, a Multi-Centered Prospective Comparative Study. I vaguely remember that study. (laughs) Do you remember what it showed? 
I believe it showed that the orthopods were, were both stronger and smarter. Is it not right? Yeah, it showed that they had a greater dominant grip strength compared right. to their anesthesiologist colleagues, right. but they yep. also had a higher IQ. Oh, that's great. Orthopedics <laughs> does take a lot of abuse. Very well, good. we better start talking about your paper. Can you give us your official reference, your title for your paper? Yep, so our study was entitled External Rotation Immobilization for Primary Shoulder Dislocation, a Randomized Control Clinical Trial. It was published in the Clinical Orthopedic and Related Research in 2014. So what was the population in this study? The population were young adults, 35 years and younger, with a primary anterior shoulder dislocation. And what were the inclusion criteria? They had to be skeletally mature patients under the age of 35 who had sustained a primary anterior shoulder dislocation. So Danny, who did you exclude from your study? We excluded patients who'd had previous shoulder dislocations, so recurrent dislocators. We wanted all primary dislocators. Patients that had an associated fracture of the proximal humerus, um, except for small lesions like a small bony bank heart lesion or perhaps even a small hill sacs lesion. And we included patients who were unwilling or unable to participate in the study. And Dagny, what was the intervention? Intervention was the external rotation brace. And they compared it to what? The internal rotation sling. And so Danny, what was your primary outcome that you were looking for? So our primary outcome was recurrent instability as defined by a documented episode of an anterior dislocation again with x-ray evidence requiring manipulative reduction in a uh, hospital or a healthcare setting or multiple episodes of shoulder subluxation which was felt to be in the patient's mind and the surgeon's mind disabling enough to seek surgical stabilization. An orthopedic surgeon was, was pretty much mandatory in the case of recurrent subluxations before categorizing the patient as having an adverse event or a uh, failure of treatment. Dagny, you did such a good job at the WASI score. What were their secondary outcomes? So they had uh, they looked at clinical assessments, compliance, and disease-specific quality of life questionnaires. So again, they used the WASI as well as the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons form. But you know what, Dagny? Here's one of my favorite parts of getting the actual author, and in this case, the lead author of a paper. Yes. I asked them to give their own conclusions. They don't even have to say, quote. So Danny... <laughs> What were your conclusions? So we did, we did not find that immobilization and external rotation conferred a significant benefit versus a traditional sling-type immobilization in preventing recurrent instability after a first-time dislocation. So let's give Danny and you those yes. probing 11 questions for randomized clinical control trials. The first question, Danny, the study population included or focused on those seen in the emergency department. Yeah, I'd say yes and no to that. We had patients who were referred from our emergency department, but also from other outpatient orthopedic and primary care sport medicine clinics. And they came to our sports center, our orthopedic sports center in London, Ontario, which was the Fowler Kennedy Clinic as the major enrollment site, within seven days of injury and uh, were assessed by the study site coordinator and usually myself, I was there for my fellowship, as to whether or not they were eligible for the study. All right, question number two, uh, the patients, were they adequately randomized, Agni? Yes, they were. The patients were assigned by a computer-generated, permuted block algorithm. Question three, the randomization process, did they hide that? Did they conceal it? Yes. Question four, the patients, were they analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? Yes, they were, intention-to-treat basis. Question number five, Danny, the study patients, were they recruited consecutively? Well, I'd say no to that question because the patients were referred from various different sites, including emergency departments. Uh, we can't say that we included or, or consecutively recruited every patient who'd had a, uh, a shoulder dislocation in our area. 
Question number six, the patients of both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors, Dagny? Yes, they were. The patient demographics and the prognostics were very similar at baseline. How about question seven, were all participants, the patients, the clinicians, and the outcome assessors, were they unaware of their group allocation? The, the patients were not. They obviously knew what uh, devices they were being immobilized in. The clinicians were usually unaware of what device the patient had been immobilized in, and the outcomes assessors were definitely unaware of what device the patient had been immobilized in. Question number eight, were all groups that were treated equally except for the intervention? Yes, they were. They all received a standardized 16-week physical therapy program. And how about the follow-up, Dagny? Uh, yes, there was a loss of 17% to follow-up, so that's 10 out of the 60, and equal loss in both groups. Question 10, all patient important factors were considered? Yes, recurrent rate and two valid and reliable self-reported patient assessment scores, the WASI and ASES. And then the last question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough, Danny, do you think to be clinically significant? I would say no, it was not in this particular case. All right, well, let's go through those results. Dagny? All right, so there were a total of 60 patients randomized in the study with 31 in the external rotation group and 29 in the internal rotation immobilization group. The mean patient age was 23 years, with 92% being men. Again, hmm. Hmm. young men. All right, so this is, this is for you, Danny. What was your primary outcome? What was the major outcome from this study? The primary outcome was a rate of recurrent instability. There was no evidence of superiority with external rotation versus internal rotation, we've already said. We had a 37% rate of recurrent instability in the externally rotation immobilized patients versus a 40% rate of recurrent instability in the sling patients, so a little bit higher, but not significantly so. And how about the secondary outcomes, Dagny? There was no difference in the WASI between the two different immobilization strategies. Yeah, now there was this small statistical difference with the ASES, but we're not sure about the clinical significance of that. But you know what? I want to start talking nerdy with Danny and you. Okay, so Danny, I'm going to lead you in. We've got five questions. So the first question is about recruitment and blinding. These were not consecutive patients. So do you think that that could have introduced some selection bias? That's possible, I guess. I think in any randomized trial that you're conducting in a group like this, which is a young, active student population in this case, there has to be some element of pragmatism involved in that, you know, you may not capture every patient. So how about the recruitment? Because now I'm worried about re referral bias. These were not just emergency department patients, but these were also clinic patients and primary care or sports medicine patients. Do you think that caused some referral bias? I don't think so. The vast majority were from emergency departments. Okay. And how about the blinding? Um, patients knew, you know, if their arm was sticking out in the external rotation group. But it said in your paper that you tried to hide this from the physiotherapist. Do you think the study could have been unblinded to the treating clinician, the physio? And would that have an, had an impact on the primary or secondary outcome for the recurrence rate or the subjective scoring? Good question. If the patients had all come for follow-up and physio at the one clinic, that very well may have been possible, but because we wanted to allow the patients some degree of freedom to go have physio in their local area, wherever they chose to have it done, it would be impossible to blind every physiotherapist to the treatment arms. So there probably was some unblinding or leakage of unblinding as the, you know, the, the uh, study progressed in terms of uh, some of the treating physiotherapists not being, or being aware of what treatment arm the patient was allocated to. And I can't really tell you how that would affect the results, to be honest with you. Dagny, you had a question. Yes. Um, Danny, can you speak to the WASI um, and the WASI versus the ASES? So my first question would be, 
The WASI was reported as a percentage in your study, but an absolute number in the Hadari study. Um, how do we compare these two numbers? It's really hard to know because we've looked at that Hadari study several times and we're still not sure how they converted their raw WASI scores. Hmm. Um, their scores are exceptionally low and um, compared to other studies that we've done. And, um, I mean, we may be able to normalize their scores by, you know, converting it or using the denominator of overall score, I guess. But uh, we found when we did that, that didn't quite correlate well with our results. I think the important thing to recognize here is that the WOSI is a disease-specific score. So it's been derived and validated in patients who have shoulder instability as a primary complaint. So, therefore, theoretically, should be a little more sensitive to those particular patients and the nuances in their recovery. Uh, versus a more general score that uh, admittedly is shoulder-specific, but not necessarily instability-specific like the ASES. And so why do you think that there was such a difference in the two scores in your study? Uh, in terms of our difference between the WOSI and the ASES? Yes. Uh, really hard to know. may just reflect the fact that the, the WOSI uh, was better at um, you know looking at patients who had shoulder instability as a primary problem as opposed to the more general ASES that um, may not have teased out the, the uh, nuances that are specific to patients who have instability versus patients who may have rotator cuff disease or labral pathology or other problems in their shoulder. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some statistical stuff now because you've got that ClinEpi. Um, the first part for this part was you had less recurrence rate than expected a priori, leaving you with an underpowered study. Yep. Why do you think that you had a lower recurrence rate? Like, why did this come into it? Well, when you look at the numbers that are popularized for recurrent shoulder instability after a primary dislocation, they're, they're very high in the literature. And most of it comes from retrospective studies or from studies that are quite old, actually. Um, they're large studies, admittedly, but they're somewhat outdated and perhaps even not very high-level evidence. Whenever you put a, a clinical entity through the rigors and the magnifying glass of a randomized trial where follow-up is very uh, regimented, and um, we're very careful about you know, documenting exactly what the outcome is, in this case, shoulder instability, then your recurrence may, may be a little lower. So my feeling has always been that we based our projected recurrence rates in this study on uh, data that was probably uh, um, not very high evidence or not very high level of evidence and um, somewhat outdated. And perhaps the recurrence rates after primary dislocations might be a little lower and certainly that's been the case in most of the subsequent randomized trials that have been done in this particular pop patient population, i.e. young, active, healthy individuals that have shoulder instability. The recurrence rates do seem to be a little lower than the previously published numbers. Yeah, we noticed that too when we were looking through the literature. Why did you decide to use means plus or minus standard deviation with p-values to express your results rather than giving a mean with a 95% confidence interval and then calculating a number needed to treat? Well, I hate to say this, but you know, I think the numbers, uh, the p-value and the standard deviation are sort of more familiar to orthopedic surgeons and uh, non-academics, perhaps. I'm, I'm, I'm leading into the orthopedic stereotype again. And, I <laughs> that. But, uh, and the journal definitely preferred that, uh, that characterization of the outcome. Okay, well, that's enough statistical stuff, Dagny. All right, so a couple more questions for you, uh, Danny, if you don't mind. Sure. Why did you find no superiority to external rotation when the other two authors did find a benefit. Do you think it had something to do with the age of the patients? Yours were a lot younger than the other study. There's certainly, uh, that's certainly a possibility. Um, our patients were all pretty much university students. 
And uh, those patients perhaps are less compliant with uh, immobilization, perhaps less compliant with physiotherapy. You know, it's really hard to know how that affects your results. The cultural differences, I think, are very important. Certainly both those other studies were conducted in different uh, continents and in different uh, cultural uh, atmospheres, so it's tough to know how that would impact as well. And, and what about the idea of including or excluding fractures within the study group? Most of the time for large fractures, fractures, we recommend that those patients have surgery, particularly in young and active patients, because we think that those fractures are going to predispose the patients to have recurrent instability. Uh, the, other, the other issue with fractures, too, it's interesting, you know, sometimes fractures of the greater tuberosity that can occur occasionally with shoulder dislocations actually lower your rate of recurrent instability. So we wanted to take out those um, um, uh, mitigating uh, factors which might influence our results. So that's why we excluded the fractures. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about the uh, devices and braces that were utilized in your study? Do you think they could have had an impact on the results at all? Because there was definitely a difference between the look of the braces between the two studies. Right. So Professor Itoy actually developed his own brace, and it's a bit of a, a homemade brace that he made through the emergency department. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what type of device the Hadari study used. We used a uh, commercially available external rotation brace that immobilized the patients in neutral external rotation. Mm -hmm. And we chose neutral external rotation because patients seem to favor that and uh, greater degrees of external rotation beyond neutral would, um, weren't, weren't very well tolerated by the patients. For the sling, we just told the emergency physicians to use the standard sling that they would normally use, again, in an effort to try to be pragmatic and, and uh, mimic the real-life scenario. Okay. Super. Thank you. All right. So the fifth and last question is, there's conflicting results in the literature, and what is the best position to immobilize these patients after primary anterior shoulder dislocation? Do you think that we just need a much bigger study, or would a systematic review help sort this out? Uh, there's been quite a bit of debate over that. Now, we actually have gone ahead and uh, have done a um, meta-analysis on this particular study and included six studies. And all of those have concluded, when you combine the results, that there's really no difference in the recurrence rate. Hmm. Um, the WOSI scores were similar as well, as were um, most of the compliance rates. So a larger study may not be necessary here. I think we have enough evidence in the literature from several randomized trials to allow us to synthesize that data and come up with a good answer. Great. Okay. So this is the part where we usually take a look at the author's conclusions and compare it to our own. So in this case, we agree with you and your conclusions that there was no benefit demonstrating external rotation versus internal rotation immobilization with the disclaimer that it was underpowered due to the lower than expected recurrence rate. But Dagny, I'm turning to you. Give me a bottom line. What's the skeptic's guide to emergency medicine's bottom line on this issue? As of right now, we do not know what is the best position for primary anterior shoulder dislocations to be immobilized in. Until that systematic review comes out and gives us some more evidence. Mm. All right, how about a case resolution? You brought up a case of a 24-year-old fooling around at the beach and dislocating his shoulder. Right, so this patient would be placed in a standard internal rotation immobilization sling. He is provided with specific instructions to wear the sling for three to four weeks and then return for reassessment. He will then be started on a course of physiotherapy, we hope, to restore range of motion, strength, and function. All right, and then the clinical application. Danny? Well, I'm going to throw another wrench in the works here. I apologize. I have to be honest with you. When we look at the, what devices the patients actually preferred, 
a lot of the patients preferred the external rotation device. And, and I heard your comments earlier about, you know, you may run into people or bang into doorways or be uncomfortable in the external rotation brace. The truth actually is, if your hand's in an externally rotated position, you can do things like use a keyboard, which is essential to our daily life. Mm. One thing I found when I was doing this is I had one student who was a, um, a waiter at a bar, and he actually could go back to work, and he laid his tray on his external rotation brace and used to clear tables. So <laughs> having your hand in front of you is actually a pretty functional position. Mm. There may actually be a role to continue to use these devices. Based on the fact that we really don't know which device is better at lowering our recurrence rate, based solely on the fact that the patients might prefer to have their hand in that position so they can use a computer and do some of the activities of daily living that they're prevented from doing by having their hand internally rotated and against their abdomen. Oh, excellent. And you know what? That's why I thought this was an excellent opportunity for shared decision-making. And this means collaborating with the patients about two reasonable options, just like you gave us the example of the waiter. You know, provide your patient with information about the traditional internal rotation versus the external rotation of mobilization and reassure the patient that there's no right or wrong answer and that anything that they decide would be fine. So I think it's an excellent opportunity in cases like this that we make shared decisions with our patients. So here's what I would say as the attending emergency physician, if I had someone coming in with that traumatic first time anterior shoulder dislocation, I'd say, hey, we've got your shoulder back in place now, but there's a high chance that it could pop out again. We need to immobilize you for the next month and then start physiotherapy. Traditionally, people have been put into slings, but some research from Japan and Iran suggests that having your arm sticking to the side in external rotation position could be better. Other research from Canada and Norway have not confirmed this finding, and the new way may turn out to be better, but it might be a bit awkward. What do you want me to do? Do you want it to be internally rotated or externally rotated? And then I'd make that shared decision. That sound reminds me that it's time for the Keener Contest. Last week's winner was Oliver Wellner. Oliver is an EM pharmacist from Kitchener, and he knew that erythromycin was originally isolated from a soil sample. Dagny, what's the Keener question this week? Hill Sachs lesion is a fairly well-known injury associated with shoulder dislocations, which we talked about today. It is a posterior lateral humeral head compression fracture. A less well-known lesion is the Bankart. What is this type of injury, and who was it named after? Oh, and I think I think you'd go have to go mm. back and listen to it because I think I think Danny mentioned what it was. But but the key is who was it named after? Who was that individual? Okay, so a conference update. I'll be leaving for Edmonton in one week for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians meeting. I'm looking forward to doing some more Cape TV, talking nerdy running the FOMED track with some amazing people like Lauren, Eve, Chris, and Aaliyah, and attending Docs That Rock concert. And then one month from now, it'll be the much-anticipated Smack Conference in Chicago, June 23rd to 26th. Getting my final Smack runs in, preparing my Smackdown debate with Rory on reading the primary literature, and rehearsing for the live performance of the Smack Cup song with superstar Eve Purdy. Dagny, I want to thank you for helping us deconstruct and unpack this conflicting literature on shoulder dislocations and immobilizations. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me back on. And it's been a real pleasure, Dr. Whalen, speaking with you today. You know what? I'll be keeping an eye out for another paper that we can do in season four of the SGEM. Super. And thank you, Danny, for coming on and providing a greater insight into the topic of your paper. 
happy to be involved, Ken. Thanks for including me. And let me give you an open invitation to return to the SGEM and discuss this systematic review when it's published. I'll be happy to be involved. Now, Danny, as our skeptical guest, you have the privilege of getting the SGEM tagline. But you noticed, I noticed a little something in your voice there, Letty. And I was wondering, could you give us your best Newfoundland accent? I usually, usually I have to be drunk for my Newfoundland accent to come out, but I'll try it. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Oh, talk to you all next week. 